0: Saturday, March 17th, 1956, New York City. It's 11.45 p.m. on a cold St. Patrick's night. We're with comedian Fred Allen taking a stroll. As of late, he's been a regular panel member on CBS's What's My Line and was to appear on Sunday, March 18th. Allen is stricken with a heart attack. He collapses in front of 171 West 57th Street. He's carried into the building's lobby where, ironically, a good friend was throwing a party. Leonard Lyons, New York Post columnist, was just leaving when he saw the scene. Allen was administered Roman Catholic last rites by Father Thomas Tierney, another good friend. Doctors ran to his aid but Fred Allen was pronounced dead at 12.05 a.m. He was 61 years old. His body was taken to the police station and his wife, Portland Hoffa, was immediately notified. His death sent the nation into a state of mourning. John Steinbeck called him the best humorist of his day and it was widely agreed by his peers that Allen could have been the 20th century's version of Mark Twain. If only he'd wanted to. In 17 years on radio, Fred Allen had high ratings and hypertension. He fought with network executives and sponsors, and read several newspapers each day. And it was his friendly feud with Jack Benny that sold out the Pierre Hotel almost 19 years to the day before his death he's a main reason for breaking walls episode 137. My name is James Scully. This is the podcast on the history of U.S. network radio broadcasting. Tonight, we'll focus on radio and St. Patrick's Day. this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform, including YouTube and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is The Sales of Galway by William Garrett Snuffy Walden for Windham Hill Records and his album Celtic Christmas 3. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash The Wall And the first eight chapters of the 2022 official Tribeca Audio selection, Burning Gotham, are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash The Wall
1: Have you been on a radio program regularly? Has it been on the air
2: for a long time? And you're a lady. Is your voice terribly well known to some member of this panel? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. (laughs) I think yes would be right for that.
1: Yes is the answer? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, is your <laughs> is your first name from Maine and your last name from this panel? Yes, it is. <laughs> is it oh, Portland? Oh, right.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> I didn't realize she was a ringer there. <laughs> the ringer. Pardon. Mrs. Fred Allen, meet Mr. Fred Allen.
1: Uh, nice to meet you, dear. I, 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 the longest evening oh, really?
5: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I didn't realize that you were
0: a that. <laughs> <laughs> in 1922 a 28 year old Fred Allen already a vaudeville veteran was hired by JJ Schubert for his Broadway production the passing show of 1922 Allen was gaining fame as a monologist he was in charge of writing his own material. One popular gag was the Old Joke Cemetery. Alan had a curtain painted as a graveyard. On the tombstones were the punchlines to 46 old jokes. When Alan moved with the show to Chicago, he met a dancer named Partland Hoffa. There, the producers told Alan to drop the cemetery gag. The show was moving to Hollywood. Alan quit. Back in New York, he demanded royalties from the Schuberts when the gag turned up in their other acts. So they rehired him to emcee artists and models. In the review, the chorus women were topless. Allen came on after the women were finished. The Schuberts and Allen soon came to a mutual release. Fred and Portland were married in 1927, and Allen starred in similar reviews until Portland joined him on stage. Decades later, their friend Jim Harkins reflected on Allen and Portland's relationship.
6: And this wonderful woman, she was a great inspiration to Fred, everything he did, because he respected her so much. When he would write hour after hour at hour, at any time in the morning, she was with him, always all night when he'd be writing, and she would set the time for him to take the walks when she'd say, that's enough, let's take a walk. He would drop everything. There was never any such thing as a squabble in that family, and there was no one ever as married as they were because they were always together everywhere, no matter where they went. He went nowhere without her, and the same with Portland. She never went anywhere without him. And if they walked down the street and holding hands, it wasn't any silly holding hands. It was a beautiful bond between two people that... The average person today with this crazy way of living doesn't understand.
0: Together they were a hit. Four years later, Allen was contemplating radio. By 1932, big names like Ed Sullivan, Ed Wynn, and George Jessel were on radio. Jessel
7: convinced Allen to audition. He was an actor of the old school, you know, a comedian with a fine intellect. His talents would have stood up in the days of Raymond Hitchcock, Nat Goodwin, Willie Collier, and Julius Tannen on the stage. And the lecture halls, he would have ably held his own with any Will Rogers, Peter Finley, Dunn, and all the other giants of a more literate age. As I think of him now, I think that Fred would have been more appreciated in the days of swirling capes and low bows.
4: I was going to do a show in the fall, and something happened to it. And at that time, radio was coming along, and fellas were getting in it. Uh, Ed Sullivan was in it, and uh, Jack Benny, and Eddie Cantor, and Ed Wynn, They were just starting in it. So it was interesting, and we started to uh, audition. We auditioned for Old Gold at one time with Kate Smith, the Howard Brothers, and Oman and Hardin. And we were turned down. Why? Well, the sponsor didn't like it. Uh, I was in it, Kate Smith was in it, Willie and Gene Howard in it, and Omen and Arden were in it, and the whole show was, started. they didn't want any part of it. So everybody went out, Kate went out by herself and did well, and Willie, poor Willie's gone now, but he he worked until the end, and Omen and Arden functioned, and I've survived some way without the company.
0: Allen felt that writing a sketch show centered around characters in different business backgrounds would appeal. The Corn Products Company hired him. Allen was paid one thousand dollars per week, but he had to produce the show out of his own pocket. He co-wrote it with Harry Tugant. Producer Roger White remembered that time.
7: Fred Allen's producer in the days of the Linnet Bath Club. <laughs>
6: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The makers of Linnett present another in their series of Linnett bathtub Club Reviews starring Fred Allen. Thank
5: you. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Telegram, Mr. Allen. Who is it from, boy?
8: Joe
6: Miller, the old joke man. Yes? He says he can't be here tonight. That's too bad. The telegram's correct. To save you the trouble, I read it on the way up.
5: To save me some more trouble, you can pay for it on the way back. Okay. And now, on with the show.
6: After six or seven weeks to critics, everybody, who is this Fred Allen? That's what really started him. All the radio critics just want to know who Fred Allen was. From there on, he really started to rise.
0: The Lynette Bath Club Review premiered on Sunday, October 23, 1932 over CBS. Right from the beginning, Allen had trouble with his sponsors.
1: Didn't you even have a sponsor's wife who made suggestions, who contributed to your program? That's
4: true. In the early days, on our first program, the Leonard program, we had the sponsor's wife like organ music. And right in the middle of our comedy program, every week we had to have an organ solo. And then when the woman found out that the organ was not in the studio, that it was two miles away from the studio and was piped in... This electronic marvel astounded her, and she thought that the people should be let in on that, so we had to announce that the organ is not in the studio, it's two miles away. Oh, no. And if you didn't believe it, you could go walk it. (laughs) As far as we were concerned, it was uphill, too.
0: The season rating was 11.9, 39th overall. Roughly 5 million people tuned in, and the show bested the Manhattan merry-go-round opposite on NBC. The program was canceled after six months. Fred returned to radio on Friday, August 4th, 1933, over NBC. His new show was the salad bowl review for Hellman's Mayonnaise. Allen was now paid $4,000 per week. Minerva Pius joined the cast. She'd later be known for her ethnic character portrayals. It would mark the beginning of a six-year relationship with the National Broadcasting Company.
5: Presenting Fred Allen. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and as Robinson Crusoe used to say whenever he heard static, well, if it isn't Friday again. But in those days, Friday didn't bring him the salad bowl review. The papers say that the hunting season has opened, and everyone knows that the well-dressed quail is wearing a feathered frown. But while the hunter is away, his wife home in the kitchen doesn't even have to hunt through her recipe book to find that the well-dressed salad is still wearing Hellman's mayonnaise. So much for hunting unless you've lost something. Tonight, if you'll step into the salad bowl, ladies and gentlemen, we'll take you back to the Bedlam Sanatorium. I am still Dr. Allen, and while I'm getting my breath after running a temperature, Ferdy Grofé will show you into the waiting room accompanied by his orchestra. Allen introduced the
0: etiquette department and the question box. People could write in to have their questions answered on air with instructions to try to slip things by the censors. He started a newsreel. It was the forerunner to the satirical comedy that would become a program staple. The ad agency who held the Hellman's account liked the program so much that they aired it through autumn, long past Mayonnaise's shelf life in a time when it was a seasonal condiment for salads. However, by December 1st, 1933, the show had to exit the air. Now, Sal Hepatica laxatives from Bristol Myers wanted in. Beginning on January fourth, 1934, Fred Allen debuted as MC for the Sal Hepatica Review.
4: No, I don't know. We were on for laxative, and we, we were on for cigarettes. We've been on for a number of things. No, I don't, if it's within the law, I don't see why I should be concerned. People are in a legitimate business, and they want to sponsor me, or they can legally advertised, I don't see why I should be the one to say I don't want to be associated with it.
0: On March 21, 1934, the broadcast was expanded to an hour. It now included Ipana toothpaste and was called the Hour of Smiles. Alan was given no additional budget, and each show had to be performed twice, once for each coast. Alan hired a couple of scriptwriters to help. One of them was Herman Wook who later won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1951 novel, The Cain Mutiny.
6: I was one of his assistant scriptwriters
4: in Town Hall tonight. Of course, Fred was by far the best writer of the lot on the show, and I think I can say, and nobody would argue this statement, that Fred was the best writer that radio ever had. He was an original humorist of first quality, and the purpose of having youngsters like myself around or was simply to uh, eke out the sheer volume of the material. By then, the
0: program had become a local review with news. On July 11th, the show was retitled, Town Hall Tonight. The tight budget left no room for big stars. Allen had to develop plot lines. Things were running smoothly until Allen was called into the agency offices. They objected to some of his jokes and didn't like the concept of a running gag something Alan had begun to develop. Alan later explained that running gags were very important because they stimulated a listener's memory and interest. The ad agency disagreed. Alan paid them no mind.
1: Why do you describe an advertising agency as being 85% confusion and 15% commission.
4: Well, because in the early days of radio, these men who were good, competent businessmen, i certainly were good advertising men, were thrown into another business that they didn't understand. They didn't know anything about show business or actors, and consequently they just treated all of us the way they treated their copy or their tomatoes or the things that they were trying to sell or advertise in the other media until radio got started. Mm-hmm. They were forcing mm-hmm. their opinions on the actors and the things that the audience got were the, uh, the likes and dislikes of their friends and relatives and close associates, you know. They foisted their tastes on the general public. I mean, if a sponsor liked a violin player, he had a violin player on. The people may not like violin players, mm-hmm. as proven by Jack Benny's career. He was forced into comedy mm-hmm. off the concert stage.
0: Allen's Town Hall tonight was pulling a rating of 18.4, when on Sunday, December 30, 1936, during the East Coast broadcast, Allen had on a nine-year-old violinist named Stuart Kanan. Kanan played a solo of Schubert's The B. Noted poor violinist Jack Benny had the country's highest-rated program. Fred Allen had no way of knowing whether Jack would respond.
5: Stuart? I think it's too bad, Stuart, that we haven't time to ask you to play an encore. You are without a doubt the most remarkable child violinist I have ever heard. Am I right, Murray? I should think think so. How long have you been studying? Five years. Five years, huh? And you're ten years Mm -hmm. old? That isn't a full size violin, is it? No. Did you, did you start on that at five years or smaller? No, smaller.
3: Smaller than, yeah. than that, huh? Three-quarters.
5: That's a three-quarters, isn't yeah. it? Imagine you're 10 or 15 years from now and you're playing the cello up under your chin. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> what grade are you in at school? Public
3: school.
5: Public school. Do you go to public school? 5B. Five five 5B? Where yeah. do you live? Edgemere?
3: Edgemere.
5: And you're in 5B, huh? Yeah. What do you know, Murray? A little fella in the fifth grade at school and already plays better than Jack Benny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to thank you very much.
7: Fred had a boy violinist on the show. He was 10 years old, and he played the B. And when he got through with the number, he said to him, he asked this boy, he said, how old are you? And the boy says, 10. He says, 10 years old, and you played the B so well. He says, Jack Benny ought to be ashamed of himself. And that's all he said. And he probably said that knowing that I was listening to his show just to make me laugh.
0: Jack had Stuart Canaan on his January 31st, 1937 episode. He promised to play the B the following week, but naturally, his violin
7: got stolen. So on the next show, on my show, at the very tag of the show, the thing we call the tag, I said to Mary, and this was merely to make Fred laugh, I said, Mary, take this. I'm going to dictate a message to Fred Allen. I want you to mail it for me. Say, dear Fred when I was 10 years old, I could play the B too. Well, the next week, Fred had some stooges on who were supposed to have known me in Waukegan, Illinois, to prove that I couldn't play the B when I was 10 years old. The following week on my show, I brought people on from Waukegan who said I could play the B when I was 10 years old. And Before we knew it, we were into the darndest feud you have ever seen, which was very funny. And the strange part of it is, I can safely say from six to eight months with this feud, before we even called each other on the phone about it.
8: Yes, sir. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Hello again, this is Jack Benny, that little ray of sunshine, just back from a week at Palm Springs and feeling twice as healthy as ever before. And anything but anemic. Well, that's fine, Jack, that's fine. Uh, did you get on there to get rid of your cold? Yes, Don, my cold and Fred Allen. <laughs> the cold doesn't bother me anymore. Well, tell me, Jack, uh, have you had any more dreams about Allen since last Sunday? Yes, I have, and it certainly makes a lie out of that old saying that you meet a better class of people in your dreams.
9: <laughs> Say, uh, not wishing to interrupt myself, but, uh, while I think of it, did you uh, hear Mr. B last Sunday? Oh, yeah, Yes, Jack had a pretty good program, didn't he, Fred? You don't think it sounded any better just because it was coming out of the Waldorf Astoria, do you? <laughs>
3: I'll
9: bet he won't get his program in there again next Sunday without baggage.
6: Why?
3: <laughs>
9: <laughs> what do you
6: mean, Fred? Jack didn't pull any faux pas at the Waldorf, did he? Why, that Okay. You know,
9: coming out, walking down one of the long halls there, he saw a lot of empty finger bowls stacked up on a table. You mean to say Jack didn't know what they were? He never saw a finger bowl before. He said, gosh, the next war is going to be terrible. They're making trench hats for children. (laughs) No kidding. Imagine that guy driving up in front of the Waldorf in a trailer. The the doorman must have been plenty mortified. At the Waldorf? The doorman at the Waldorf didn't even know what the trailer was. He thought one of the penthouses blew off the roof.
6: Oh, say, uh, Fred, did you hear Jack say that you misinformed your radio audience? 400 people around the country?
3: <laughs> he wouldn't
9: know what it meant to cater to the 400. <laughs> oh, and
6: another thing I thought was funny was when he grilled little Stuart
9: Canaan. thing? Wait to a be... minute. What was the first thing you thought was funny? <laughs> Never mind, another thing you thought was funny. What was... <laughs> now, let's isolate that thing that was funny. What, uh... When
1: what Jack just... flew
9: off the roof. Oh, uh, well, he's had plenty of practice flying off the handle, they can't, uh, he's been modeling for, at Hammocker Schlemmer's, you know, for hammers down there for a long time. He flies off the handle, and if the hammer can't do it, it's ready to sell. But you said about, uh, little Stuart Kanin, the, Yeah, uh,
6: he grilled the little fella, you know. Oh, that little boy who played the B. Mm-hmm.
9: Why that big bully picking on a little fella like Stuart? Benny the Bully Benny a Bully hey, Benny a Bully hey, Benny the Bully, ben, he's a bully. Ben, he's a bully. Why, Why doesn't he pick on somebody his size? He's the kind of a guy who gives Shirley Temple a hot for it.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
9: Why, of all the cowards, the last time he got into an argument with the Deon quintuplets, he invited them outside one by one. <laughs> Wait a minute, Fred. Jack's all right. Why, I think I'll go over and see him next Sunday. Why I'll... wait a minute, Fred, you're not gonna break up his program, are you? I'll tell him a thing or two. No, I I won't tax him mentally. I'll just tell him a thing.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the feud got bigger each week. By February, Allen's rating was up to twenty five point four. More than 13 million people were listening. Eventually, Benny and Allen decided to meet in the fight of the century. It was to be March 14th over Benny's program. Hey, what's going on in here? NBC was flooded with ticket requests. The show was moved to the Grand Ballroom at the Hotel Pierre in New York to accommodate the crowds.
2: I heard that disturbance outside. Now, whoever's manipulating that fog on in here has got to cut it out. Well, Well. Well, as I live and regret the that there are no locks
3: door.
2: <laughs> if it isn't Boo Allen. <laughs> now, listen, Allen, what's the idea of breaking in here in the middle of my singing? Singing? Yes. Now, listen, Betty. I didn't mind it when you scraped that overnight bag two weeks ago <laughs> and called that playing the bee. Yeah. But when you stand here tonight and set that whooping cough to music <laughs> and call that singing, you're going too far. Oh, you didn't like it, huh? Like it? Why, you make Andy Devine sound like Lawrence Tibbett? <laughs> Now, look here, Alan. I don't care what you say about my singing or my violin playing on your own program. But when you come up here, be careful. After all, I've got listeners. Keep your family out of this. <laughs> now, listen. My family, my family likes my singing and my violin playing, too. Your violin playing? Yeah. You're using the verb loosely, Mr. <laughs> Benson. <Bennington. laughs> Why, uh, why, if I was a horse, if I was a pony even, and found out, found out that my tail... (laughs) Found out that any part of my tail was being used in your violin bow, I'd hang my head in my oat bag from then on. Well, you listen to me, you Wednesday night hawk. Another crack like that and town hall will be looking for a new janitor.
3: Why?
2: Why, you fugitive from a Ripley cartoon?
3: <laughs>
2: I ought to bend your nose around until if you want to smell anything, you'll have to curb it.
3: <laughs>
2: you, lay you lay a hand on me. You lay a hand on me. Anything we'll say accidentally will be better than the script.
3: <laughs>
2: okay, and you lay a hand on me, Benny, and you'll be hollering strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and health. Oh, listen to that smile of beauty. Keep this up, Alan, and I'll ask Don Wilson to fall on you. And if Wilson falls on you, you know what that means.
1: Oh boy, press ham. (laughs) That a girl,
2: Mary, that's a honey. Quiet,
0: coward. The two stepped outside to have it out. But they returned back-slapping and vaudeville reminiscing.
2: Now, Alan, I'm up here attending to my own business. There's no place to settle our private
0: affairs. Three days later, on March 17, 1937, Alan celebrated St. Patrick's Day on the air.
8: New York City, New York. New 20th century picture, Love is News, is held over a second week at the Roxy Theater. Produced by Darrow Zanuck, written by Harry Tugand and Jack Yellen, Love is News registers comedy triumph. Down Hall News brings you a ten-second preview of this excellent film, Love is News.
9: Wait for a a read all about it. What's the
8: headline, boy? Jack Benny and Fred Allen kiss and make up. Is that a front-page romance? And how, mister? With those two mudslingers. Love is news. <laughs> New York City, New York. Ship officers report stormy crossings on Atlantic Ocean. Record gales lash heavy seas, and ships experience trouble in navigating through storms. Town hall news flashes candid camera shot of a terrible sea. The sea. <laughs> Encore, encore,
3: Harry.
8: (laughs) I don't know about the bow, but it was good and nichey there at the beginning. (laughs) Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. And now... No, no, no. Well, as you I was saying. If, if, if you'll bear with me just...
9: I would like to see... Just a, a moment,
8: ladies and gentlemen. I'll uh, I'll try to find out what's on the my, mind of this disgruntled Eskimo, if you'll just turn around.
6: Well, I was just practicing... Well, Why, Harry to... Bonzel, a big boy like you... <laughs> It might have sounded funny, but you know, last night I was reading about Demosthenes. And what are Demosthenes? Oh, spread out. A big boy like you. Demosthenes was a famous Greek orator. And he used to practice speaking, you know, with pebbles in his mouth to improve his diction and enunciation. Like this, looking.
8: Ferns, rollers, and corn. And just what do you. Uh, he didn't say that. Huh? And just what do you. Just what do you hope to accomplish pursuing this strange pastime, Harry?
6: Well, Fred, I, I just thought I'd keep practicing so that when I passed along those friendly tips about salipatica, there wouldn't be a chance of a single word being missed. Because to know about salipatica is to know a mighty effective way to get after those dull, logy, headachey feelings we have so often. Those under feelings usually caused by accumulated waste and resulting acidity. You see, ladies and gentlemen... Sal hepatica is the mineral salt laxative that gets after both of those things at once. It removes waste through laxation, and it helps nature combat that acidity. So the next time you feel under the weather, put two teaspoonfuls of sal hepatica in a glass of water and drink it. You'll soon be feeling your old normal self again if you remember sal hepatica for the smile of health.
0: Fred Allen ended the 1936-37 season with the sixth most listened-to program on radio.
8: Thank you, Peter Van Steeden and the Ipana Troubadours have just played Serenade in the Night. Now on Friday night there will Mr. be an o- Oh God! Mr. It- now quiet, please. Look, if that is somebody left over from a uh, hello. <laughs> well, I'll say you've done it again, haven't you? <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, sir, the the chairman laughed when I said I was going to take the floor. He didn't know the linoleum wasn't paid for. Well, it can lay there with the linoleum. Well. <laughs>
1: if
8: it isn't Portland.
1: Yes. Important. What's
8: important?
1: Papa says you should make up your mind what night you're going to be on the radio.
8: Well, you don't think just because I went on with Jack Benny last Sunday that the people are getting confused, do you?
1: I'll say they are. I saw the man upstairs brushing his teeth with Jello this morning.
3: <laughs> well, <laughs>
8: see, you will get a life membership in the Don Wilson Foundation <laughs> for that. You saved them that much work next Sunday. Well, that doesn't make any difference. People brush their teeth with jello. Just as long as they don't try to buy iPanner In six delicious flavors, they'll be all right. Come in.
1: Telegram for Fred Allen.
8: Right here, boy. All right, sign here. Here's a pencil. Thank you, son.
1: The boy's still waiting, Mr. Allen.
8: Uh, thank you, son.
6: Don't give me none of that, buddy. Now see here. Listen, Greaseball. I don't mind not getting my tip, but when you try to cop my pencil, you're rubbing it in. Here's your pencil, stickler. Okay,
8: cheapskate. That boy's too fresh.
1: Why don't you tear up the telegram and get even with him, Mister Allen? No,
8: here you uh, you read it. I I've, I've got to blow down my neck.
1: Blow down your neck?
8: Yes, I'm I'm getting hot under the collar. <laughs>
1: I'll see who the telegram's from.
8: All right. <laughs> what does it say?
1: Dear palsy Walsey, happy birthday to you. I know it isn't your birthday, but I had to have an excuse to send you loads of love.
8: Who sent that?
1: It's signed Jack Benny. <laughs>
8: oh, Jackie, Hey, <laughs> He's a prince. Oh, there's a sweet guy, Portland. Good old Jackie. Gosh, he's so sweet, he's almost sticky.
1: It's silly to send a birthday wire when it isn't your birthday.
8: Listen, it isn't the stupidity, it's the sentiment gets me. (laughs) There's the whitest guy I know.
1: Yes, you said he was anemic.
8: Now, listen, don't let anyone tell you Jackie Benny's anemic. He just stays white on purpose so everybody else will look healthy.
1: Gosh, Jack must have a big heart.
8: Why, Jackie Benny's heart's so big, you can put a stethoscope on him any place and get action. (laughs) Did you hear his program last Sunday?
1: Yes. What was that static right in the middle of it?
8: Static? Was it before or after Jack and I sang?
1: It was during.
8: During. Well, let me tell you something. A lot of people didn't catch our names when we sang.
1: How do you know?
8: Nelson Eddy got 300 wires from people who said they enjoyed his double voice solo.
1: Gosh, to me it sounded like two wildcats picketing a pet shop.
8: Two wildcats picketing a pet shop. (laughs) Do you know that the next morning after Jackie and I sang at the Pierre, all of the flowers bloomed in Central Park? They thought the robins were back from the south. That's
0: done it. From then on, jokes about Benny, where surefire hits.